This is Made at UCL, the podcast, bringing you closer to the UCL research, answering life's big questions. From engineering to art, healthcare to space exploration, ancient artifacts to the technology of the future. Episode 4, Maps. Hello, I'm Susie. Welcome to our show, or welcome back to our regular listeners. As usual, we've got an episode full of stories from all corners of the university. And for this episode, they're all connected through maps. Until my second year of university, I'd always seen maps as pretty boring. I associated them with rather sad geography lessons at school. Just lines of countries I'd never been to, waiting to be coloured in and labelled. But since then, I've come to realise that maps can represent all sorts of information. And that all sorts of interesting things happen when you start trying to pin a real, physical thing down on paper. Even parts of the body. The prostate is like a fingerprint. It's different in everybody. This is Professor Mark Emberton, surgeon, urologist and the Dean of Medical Sciences at UCL. So you can actually identify a man by his prostate because each prostate's unique. And that does make diagnosis difficult because in diagnosis you're trying to tell the abnormal from the normal. If the normal shifts and is different in everybody, it's very hard to make that distinction. For the past 40 years, if you were a man with symptoms suggesting prostate cancer, you'd go for blood tests. If these suggested the presence of a tumour, surgeons would insert a needle into the prostate to try to take a sample. But because your prostate's unique, inserting the needle in the right place was almost a process of trial and error. Your surgeon wouldn't know exactly where the tumour was. What that meant is that we often missed tumours, um, so we told people they were clear when they were not, uh, or we misdiagnosed tumours in other words, we, we caught the edge of a tumour because we didn't know where it was and therefore told the patient that it was lower risk than it really was. Not only this, but not knowing the location of the tumour meant that treatments were less effective. All our treatments for prostate cancer have been directed at the organ, not the cancer, uh, which again is very unusual. If you think of somebody with a, a liver cancer, uh, you don't remove the whole liver, the patient would die. You remove the cancer plus a margin. But for prostate, for the last 100 years, it's been radiotherapy or surgery to the whole gland because we didn't know where the tumour was. What we knew is that there was cancer or no cancer. If you had cancer, you had your prostate removed or irradiated. If you didn't have cancer, you didn't. Yeah? So because we didn't know where the cancer was, we had to treat the whole organ. If you're a patient, this often meant stopping the prostate from doing its job. And it also caused side effects because of the role of the structures that surround the prostate. The prostate makes semen. Um, by the time most men are diagnosed, they're past their reproductive age, so that's not a huge issue. Most of the harms of treatment come from damaging surrounding structures, vessels, nerves, rectum, bladder, sphincter, uh, that helps you control your urine flow and keeps you dry. And, and the nerves that mediate erections run down the back of the prostate. Recent studies show that incontinence can result in 10 to 20% of men, and that 70% of men, after surgery, for instance, uh, will lose their capacity for erections. So how can we treat prostate cancer and avoid these undesirable effects? If you change your treatment from directing your attention to the whole gland and your attention is instead directed to the tumour, all the structures that I've just listed uh, remain intact. We can virtually guarantee continence in individuals, and we can give men a 90 to 95% chance of keeping erection sufficient for penetration. This is where advances in MRI techniques, partly developed at UCL, have come in. 
MRI being that donut-shaped scanner where you lie down and it works around you. A UCL study called Promise showed that for the old test... 52% of men had their clinically significant disease either missed or misdiagnosed. Whereas MRI... ...was 100% better than the standard of care. The use of MRI has been the first step in the improvement of treatment. It's led to the NHS guidelines being changed, so now MRI is the first line of investigation for all suspected prostate cancer. And it means that now many men don't have to have a biopsy at all. But for those that do, MRI on its own still wasn't enough. MRI gives a high-definition image of the tumour and where it is in the prostate. But you can't use metal in an MRI machine. This matters because when it comes to sampling a tumour, you need to use a metal needle. So when taking a biopsy, surgeons only had the more general map of the prostate gland given by the ultrasound to guide them. The ultrasound looks very fuzzy, it looks very vague. When it came to the exact location of the tumour, they were still stabbing in the dark. But a new technology called Smart Target, developed by Dr Dean Barrett at UCL, reconstructs the MRI image of the tumour. And this... Allows us to superimpose on that vague, grey, weather-mappy-looking screen a bright red mark, which usually is oval or round or sausage-shaped. Mark can then guide his needle into that sausage-shaped target to get a good sample of the tumour. So this is a kind of augmented reality. We see a reconstruction of the cancer that was generated on the MRI scan. And that we can see in real time. Even more cleverly, the engineers have managed to um, manipulate that image so that when we squeeze the prostate with ultrasound and change the shape and the contour of that prostate, the cancer moves within it. It's also really useful in training new surgeons. It gets a non-expert up, up to expert level straight away. I'm regarded as an expert, <laughs> uh, largely because I've been doing this a long time, and smart target is as good as me. So um, the worry thing is it's going to make people like me very redundant. This rang a few alarm bells for me, partly because I didn't realise how much of medicine is already being assisted by technology. I guess also for people like me, who can be a bit slow to understand how computers and tech works. It can seem a bit scary that a machine can replace an expert, like Mark says, particularly when things are advancing so rapidly. No, it's fascinating. So there's nothing I do that I was taught to do as a trainee. So all the, all the operations that I was taught to do as a trainee are now obsolete. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's in 15 to 20 years. Huge advances. I mean, huge advances. Uh, in in um, in the way that we treat patients, if you use a robot between you and the patient, that's pretty standard now in most most surgeries. I treat virtual prostates, not real prostates, and I do that on the screen, and I fire energy at the cancer to destroy it in a selective manner, which obviously requires smart target um, to give me location. And so, if I know where the tumor is, um, I can destroy that tissue using sound waves. I can use laser. I can use electricity, I can generate heat from radio frequency. And that's work, again, that has been led by UCL. If we make the diagnosis early and we find a cancer, it's, it's, it's not too difficult for us to treat it. And the beauty of the patient is they come in in the morning, we do their treatment and they go home in the afternoon. And so it's all done in a day, it's painless, and they have... Little or no side effects. It's not magic. We still have to destroy tissue. But the side effects are really, really minimal in the majority of patients. 
Smart Target is being rolled out in hospitals in the UK and USA, and the teams at UCL are continuing to find better and better ways of diagnosing and treating prostate cancer. From mapping prostates, we're going to change it up a bit. From contours of the body to crinkles and creases of the past. I'm Philippa Smith. I'm Head of Collections at London Metropolitan Archives. London Metropolitan Archives, or LMA, is home to a whole collection of documents all about London. It's open to everyone and is owned and managed by the City of London Corporation. Philippa has been involved in work to reconstruct an important historical document known as the Great Parchment Book, which is also colloquially known as the Doomsday Book of the Plantation, and that's the plantation of Ulster, or Northern Ireland. In the 16th century, Tudors wanted to make Ireland part of Britain, and so they took land from Gaelic lords, particularly in Northern Ireland. English, Scottish and Welsh settlers were sent to take over the land, creating plantations. And in 1639, the Great Parchment Book of the Honourable Irish Society was written. It documents the plantations and contains lists of the various owners and administrators who lived and worked on the land, what their rights and obligations were, and what they produced. So it's a snapshot of the society in Ulster at that time, so it's really significant, but it also has resonances that that lead right up to the present day as well. The way Derry, London Derry, looks today is largely due to the changes made during the time of these plantations. And also many of us with British or Irish ancestry may well find their own family stories at least partially told within the pages of the Great Parchment Book. It's especially significant because there's been relatively little historical documents that provide such in-depth information about the colonisation of Ulster. The plantations were managed by various companies set up by the City of London who became the guardians of the Great Parchment Book. But there was just one problem. Unfortunately, there was a fire. A lot of the Irish Society's archive was either destroyed or badly damaged, and some of the City of London's own archives were destroyed as well. So the Great Parchment Book, which was a volume, shrunk and became distorted. It became known as the Poppadom Book to people in recent times because it just looked like a pile of poppadoms and nobody could access the information contained within it. And that's where Tim came in. My name is Tim Weirich. I'm a professor of visual computing at the Department of Computer Science at UCL. Tim's specialism has all sorts of applications. At first, I think of gaming and films, graphics and special effects. But it turns out this expertise can be useful in solving the rather common problem of reconstructing damaged historical documents. It's actually not an unusual state for a parchment to be in. You know, people documented many things on parchments and kept them in, li- in libraries that were lit with candles. Many, many archives have uh, documents in similar state. And uh, in the past, conservation attempts often started by humidifying the parchments and then trying to stretch them back into shape. But the problem is that parchment is animal hide. It does the same as hair does if it gets close to a candle. It starts shriveling and distorting in very unpredictable uh, ways. These unpredictable distortions mean that it's not just a job of flattening out the page. After all, it's not a flat object we're after, it's one that we can read. Once the parchment has become so distorted and shriveled, flattening it risks damaging it and further obscuring the words under the folds. So, to prepare the document, the conservators did the opposite of what they would usually do and pushed out those cracks and crevices to make the parchment. 
even more lumpy bumpy than it was originally because we were trying to push out the creases, expose the text. After this transformation, it was time for the computer scientists to work their magic. It's not unlike the problem of a map maker's. Map makers have a, you know, a shape, which is the shape of the Earth, sphere, mountains, and so on, and they have to depict it in, on a two-dimensional map. Map makers also were often faced with this problem that as you try to flatten something, you introduce distortions whether you want it or not. In the modern days, we're all used to interfaces such as Google Earth that sidestep this problem by just introducing a camera that flies over the shape of the Earth that is textured with the appearance. So the plan was to make an interactive programme that modelled the 3D shape of the parchment. So you can navigate along the lines as the lines travel across the distorted shapes, and it turned out to be quite readable. There was now a 3D model of the Great Parchment book, which uncovered hidden histories by revealing text written 200 years ago. But this was a world which could only be traversed through the wizardry of computer software. So the researchers decided to go further and try to digitally flatten the pages back into a 2D image. At first, this felt like an impossible problem to solve because the distortions were so unpredictable and computers struggle when there isn't a clear pattern to the puzzles they're trying to solve. But Tim and his colleagues realised there were parts of the document that would have originally been very regular. It's lines of text that were written very straight. For administrative documents like this, Scribes would have literally ruled lines on the page to make sure they didn't veer off course. On top of this... Because handwriting at that time was very uniform. They could also use certain letters that were originally all the same shape and size. Such as lowercase e, lowercase a. Which gave the computer enough information to untrivel the parchment. But it wasn't just computers responsible for the final reconstruction of the document. We did have a transcriber, um, a historian with expertise in reading 17th century handwriting. Because of her experience and because documents like that are often quite formulaic in parts, even where there was text missing, she could sometimes work out what was going on as well. So there was another sort of reconstruction going on at the same time. She did work with the person doing the, the digitisation. So I think that collaboration was really, really important. It's not a computer solving all the problems. It is not uh, the human expert doing everything. There needs to be a symbiosis between technology and, and a human. From the initial stages of making the Poppadom book more lumpy and bumpy, through the digital imaging and flying cameras, all the way to the final transcription, it was really important that the conservator and computer science teams worked closely together. And that's what allowed this brand new method of reconstruction to be created. And to me, this is also where research becomes interesting, computer science research. This is what Tim wants computer scientists to do more of in the future. He wants them to branch out to see how they can support other disciplines, such as history and conservation, but also to focus on how they can listen to experts in other fields when designing their software. He is continuing work on the particular software used to reconstruct the Great Parchment Book to make it more accessible for those without specific training in digital imaging. And in the meantime, the Great Parchment Book is open and available for researchers of all kinds to investigate the history of Ulster. We've now got this website that has the digitally flattened images. It's got the transcription as well. It's a really valuable resource for researchers now. Students at the University of Ulster are using it. Conservation students are using it across, across the world. 
On all sorts of levels it's being used in research. It's, it's, it's a, of continuing interest to people. In 2016, it was added to the UNESCO UK Memory of the World and it was the first document from Northern Ireland to be added to that register. This says a lot about the significance of the Great Parchment Book and why Tim's work was so important in uncovering previously hidden histories. It's also offered a way forward for other fire-damaged documents so that conservators can continue to reveal secrets of the past. And for LMA, having such a great result has given them the bug for scientific conservation methods. For example, DNA testing of parchment, also using X-rays to read parchment volumes that have become completely fused into big blocks so you cannot read anything inside them. It's like sci-fi historians. (laughs) (laughs) If you'd like to take a look at the Great Parchment book yourself and maybe do a little historical sleuthing of your own, you can find the links on our website. We also have a full list of all the sponsors and partnerships of the project, because without them, it wouldn't have been possible. We're now stepping out of the library and mountains of parchment to the very literal forests of Central Africa. Hi, I'm Jerome Lewis. I'm an anthropologist at University College London. I've been doing a lot of applied work with two research groups, one called the Centre for the Anthropology of Sustainability and the other called the Extreme Citizen Science Research Group. The Extreme Citizen Science Research Group covers all sorts of disciplines and projects at UCL. It supports communities around the world to do their own scientific research so that they may find ways to deal with issues that are concerning them. It started with work that Jerome did in the early 2000s. In Congo, where I did my main field research as an anthropologist, spent three years living in the forest with the Bambenjele hunter-gatherers there. That's Bambenjele. So I said, uh, I speak Bambenjele. It's a nice language, but you don't understand it. (laughs) In fact... A lack of understanding is what led to this citizen science project with the Bambenjeli. A logging company was looking to fell timber from the forest where the Bambenjeli live. They wanted to gain a Forest Stewardship Council certificate to give a green label to their forestry. The problem was... They didn't have any idea how to deal with the local people. FSC Principle 3 requires that loggers respect forest users and indigenous people in particular and there mustn't be any conflicts between what the foresters do and what the indigenous people require from the forest. But the foresters had no idea how to address this and we had hours and hours of discussions with the bosses and I translating for my uh, Bambinjele friends and, and there was just, it was like a dialogue of the death. Nobody understood anything anyone was saying. It was very difficult for the Benjeli because they live out in the forest. They don't know about door handles and opening doors, closing doors and all the basic protocols and practices that are expected of people in meetings, formal meetings with agendas and all this kind of stuff. So it was very tiresome. One of the trees in the forest is the sapoli tree. Which is African mahogany. They're used in lots of fire doors in the UK, in London, for instance. This is a popular and beautiful wood And it's also used for furniture because of its shine and natural strength. Anyway, finally, I suggested that, look, what you need to do is actually start recording what things they use and then see if there are any problems with what you want to use. And this began an approach that reoriented the focus to begin with an understanding of the forest through the Bambangeli's eyes. Because for them, 
The sampali tree is not important for its wood, but they... ...collect caterpillars from them, which are a really important food source every year. And they're extremely valued uh, on local markets, so they have a very high cash value. So it was clear that the Bamangeli and the logging company had very different ideas about the uses of the sapoli tree. We had some quite amusing uh, exchanges with the logging director who was saying, well, I'd better start doing caterpillars then and stop this logging business. <laughs> Jerome and the Bamangeli got out of the tiresome meeting rooms and into the forest to start mapping the sapoli trees. The hunter-gatherers explained that they didn't need to preserve all the trees because it's only the tallest ones that rise above the canopy of the forest. And that means the butterflies find them as they fly over, lay their eggs, which soon turn into caterpillars. So those emergent trees that poke out through the top of the canopy are the key ones. So we went out and we started mapping them. And, uh, and then I asked the Benji, well, what else are you upset about the loggers damaging? They said, oh, well, we don't like them damaging our cemeteries. We don't like them damaging springs, you know, where you get clear water coming out of the ground and various other things, medicinal trees, sacred areas and so on. So we said, all right, well, let's map all these places. I said at the start of this episode that it's only recently I've understood just how important maps can be in shaping the world around us. Maps are not just neutral objects that show us where things are. In many legal and political systems around the world, they can be really powerful documents. By being able to show exactly where different resources that you exploit are, you make a very strong claim to being someone who uses those resources. And in many legal systems, use is evidence of rights. Often there are overlapping uses, so we've tended to shy away from boundaries because for many indigenous groups, having rigid, strict boundaries is not actually a big deal. You know, there's a general understanding that if you, you stray a little bit into our area, it's not a problem, and if we stray a bit into your area, that's not a problem either. We avoid boundaries, but we make sure resources are mapped so people can see the use patterns on an area. This has been an effective way for many indigenous peoples to take part in legal systems more on their own terms. But there were still barriers in the way. For many, being able to read and write is less important than really knowing and understanding your land and your people's history. You gain that knowledge through experience, not through books, documents or maps. And the problem for Jerome and the Bambangeli was that the GPS system they were using to do the mapping needed each point to be written down manually which was slowing everything down and causing errors to be made. So they needed to develop a different approach, and it was Jerome's wife who held the key. She works in public health, and she had been developing a mobile clinic for non-literate hunter-gatherers. And it's quite challenging to think about how can you ensure dosages are done safely and correctly. And so uh, she developed a pictorial way of sticky labels that she stuck on the medicine bottles in order to make sure that people were safe in their use. So all was on symbols. And it was that really that gave me the idea that, well, we could do this mapping on symbols too. This led to the creation of Sapoli software, named after those caterpillar trees. This is an app that can be downloaded onto a smartphone and uses icons or symbols to help identify and map important features of a particular area. The app has been designed to use anywhere and can be adapted to the community that uses it so that everyone knows and recognises exactly what those icons mean. What we do, for instance, if we've drawn the symbols, which in some cases is, is a more efficient way of doing it, um, we show them to people and we ask them, what does this mean? We don't tell them. And if they 
get it wrong, then obviously that's not a good symbol. And then we work together with them to draw it in a more appropriate way. Sometimes they'll draw it on the dirt, in the dirt, on the ground. Sometimes they'll take us to something and tell us, take a photograph of this. Um, and, and other times we'll redraw it by hand together with them commenting as we draw, or they'll take a pencil and draw it. But the point is that it has to be together as something that you do as a, a collaborative process. And the way we know they're right is when we hold up that piece of paper with the icon drawn on it, everybody says, oh, that's what it is, that's what it is, that's what it is. And then we know, right, that's the, that's the correct icon. So once again, the app and the process of mapping needs to be something that focuses on the type of knowledge and understanding that's already held within these communities. It means whether or not people can read or write, they still have the power to protect their land rights. And the advantage of that is that it means that those people who have the real ecological knowledge tend not to be the people who've been to school. Schooling destroys ecological knowledge, and this is a huge problem for so many indigenous communities around the world, and indeed, I think, for Europe in general, from just not spending enough time in nature, basically. And the software does not restrict the kind of indigenous and local knowledge that can be documented and shared. We have created a, a tool which is wide open to be populated in whatever way people wish it to be populated. And they can use for recording problems like poaching, recording uh, abuses by uh, conservation guards, or recording laxity uh, at roadblocks that are supposed to be checking for meat smugglers. There, there are a whole range of issues that people will say they want to record. And people are doing this around the world. In Kenya, the Maasai are documenting where their medicinal plants grow to protect them from the expansion of tourist areas. In one morning, they named 126 plants uh, individually that they knew. If you're listening to this, try and think how many names of plants you can provide in the next 30 minutes and see what your total is. And from Central Africa, Safali Software has travelled as far as Southeast Asia is being used in Cambodia by the Prey Lang community network. And whenever illegal loggers are heard in the forest, they all come together on their mopeds and they zoom out to where they are. They start taking photographs of all the uh, trees they're cutting down. They succeed in confiscating their chainsaws, take them away. They make sure that the authorities get a full report with all the evidence provided. And they've done an extraordinary job in protecting the Preylang forest from further massive deforestation. The Preylang community were awarded the UN Equity Prize for their fantastic work in protecting their forest. We'll be hearing more from Jerome in a future episode about another prize-winning project, this time in South America. So stay tuned. In the meantime, if you want to take a look at the Sapoli software for yourself and get to work on some citizen science, follow the links on our website. We'd also really like to hear your thoughts on the series. You can tweet about it with the hashtag MadeAtUCL. Made at UCL, the podcast, is produced by me, Susie McCarthy. The executive producer is Nina Garthwaite. Mixing support from Mike Woolley. We'd like to thank all our researchers for welcoming us into their labs and offices. Hashtag Made at UCL is a campaign that brings to life disrupted thinking from UCL. Research presented in this episode was nominated and selected because of the impact it's made on everyday life and society. This episode is brought to you from UCL Minds, events, lectures and podcasts open to everyone. Mm-hmm.